0: I'm going to use a, a phrase this morning that I, I pray is not distracting for you, but um, it just kind of encapsulates and probably, I hope, might help you to remember um, what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, there is an author by the name of Jim Collins, some of you might remember or know that name. He's a, a business consultant, writer, author, a lecturer, um, to help provide um, resources to help Businesses Go From Good to Great. That's one of the names of his books, From Good to Great. And uh, he's analyzed lots of businesses from around the country, and he has kind of come up with core reasons why certain companies go great. And one of those commonalities is that companies have what is called, that is the ones who go from good to great, have um, big, hairy, audacious goals like that, or BHAG for short, B-H-A-G, okay? Now, I want you to kind of cement that into your mind because I'm going to be using that phrase, um, big, hairy, audacious goals. Um, and the importance of that is, is big, hairy, audacious goals actually have the capacity to ignite and motivate and encourage everybody to move in the same direction. Or in his own words, he says a true... BHAG, right, big, hairy, audacious goal, is clear and compelling, serves as unifying focal point of effort, and acts as a clear catalyst for team spirit. It has a clear finish line so the organization can know when it has achieved the goal. People like to shoot for the finish lines. Now, obviously, we're not here this morning to talk about business or companies, and we're not here to talk about how to take a, a church organization big. That's not the intent. Rather, I want to use that big, hairy, audacious goal to talk about what God's great, big, hairy, audacious goal is in human history. And that that ought to be the alignment point or the center point or the overarching goal to which all of our praying should, should move. Now let me just pause for a second and just... Reflect for a moment on, on, on how most of us pray. I'm assuming most of us pray. Most of us pray in the present tense. Uh, present pressures, pains, difficulties, struggles. Those are the things that press in on us in the immediate present. And we, those are the things we pray about is, is, are those things. Sickness, disappointment, um, disbelief, doubt, lack of love. Those are things that we pray for, and mostly they are present tense. And that's a good thing. Um, Most of the Psalms are written out of a a present tense experience or struggle in which the person, the man or woman of faith, cries out. So it's a good thing. But what's interesting to me about the prayers of the Bible is they don't just stop there. They don't just ask, for example, um, deliverance from a physical illness. In fact, this is an interesting... um, uh, observation that in none of the prayers of Paul does he ever pray to be released from his difficult circumstances. Doesn't mean he couldn't have or that people didn't. But as to say, there's a higher aim or goal when it comes to our praying life to which we bring our present pressures and our pains and our struggles. And it's that central goal that I want to talk about this morning, that purpose, that overarching purpose that should should um, should be that big, hairy, audacious goal to which our prayers should move. Psalm 86, right in the middle, you'll notice if in the beginning of his psalm, at the end of the psalm is a petition. He starts it off in the beginning, incline your ear, O Lord. That's a prayer. And then he closes the very last full sentence of the psalm is, show me a sign of your favor. These are requests. But then right in the middle. In a rather David-like fashion, he pauses and reflects and declares the greatness of God in the midst of his prayer. And not just the greatness of God, but the greatness of his goal for humanity. It's a part of of his prayer. Now I said it's David-like, and it's a pattern for him. And it's a good pattern for us as well. In the middle of our praying, however we may organize it, that part of our prayers is to line to the greatness and the great goals of of God. Um, I won't give examples for David. Well, let me give you a couple examples just so you see. This is how he prays. Psalm 27, he's talking about armies rising against him and enemies and evildoers who uh, assail him to eat up his flesh. And right in the middle of this, this urgent plea, he says, One thing have I asked for that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. It's like he opens a window and just says, ah, there you are. Or Psalm 36, talking about the fact that transgression speaks to the heart of a person deep down, and he deceives himself, and right in the middle of reflecting on the negativity of sin, he says, "Um, your love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, and your faithfulness to the sky. It's like all of a sudden he goes... uh, Glory of God, right in the middle of his prayer. He does the same in Psalm 86. In between these petitions about his life and the struggles he's experiencing because ruthless men are rising up against him, he reflects on and declares the greatness of God and his purpose. Here's the, uh, the verses we've, we're going to look at, verses 8 and following. He says, right in the middle of this prayer, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. And then he speaks personally, verse 11, Teach me your way, O Lord. That I may walk in your truth, unite my heart to fear your name. I give, you, I give thanks to you, O oh my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. You notice the first part that I read, the slide right before this one? He's reflecting on the greatness of God and the effect that it has on the world, in particular on the nations. It's grand, it's sweeping, it's big. And then in verse 11, he transitions. Now he prays about his own heart and his own life as it relates to God's greatness. And I want to kind of start with David's personal prayer for his own life and then just back up at the end briefly to talk about how that extends also to the nations. That's kind of the big, hairy, audacious goal. David's prayer life. You'll notice in these verses, verse 11 in particular, that he has two requests Teach and unite, with reference to his own heart. Teach and unite. He says, teach me your way, O Yahweh, that I may walk in your truth. Now the effect is to walk in your truth. That is, the entire conduct of my life, let it be according to and conform to your truth. That's the effect, a a life that orbits around God's truth. Who God is, what he's done, and what he has revealed as to how we should live. That's your truth. The cause of that is teach me your way. Teach me. Now let me tell you what I don't think David means by teach me your way. I don't think David has in mind inform me of the verses and the propositions and the laws and precepts of truth. Later on, he quotes his Bible. If you remember, Psalm eighty-six, verse fifteen. So he knows the truth mentally and intellectually. And by the way, there's we ought to know the truth intellectually and mentally. You can't have the truth go to your heart if you don't know it with your head. But I believe what he's talking about. He's is saying, "Teach me your word." That is, teach my heart, teach my soul. Every one of us has this this spiritual aspect of who we are, this heart out of which everything else flows, all of our decisions, all of our desires. It's like that is the fountain out of which our whole being comes. Um, And the only one who can change that or really teach that is the Lord by way of the Spirit. We can't teach our souls. Only God can do that through his word by the power of his Spirit. And I think that's what David's getting at. Teach me your way. Write it on the fabric of my heart. Write your law within my soul so that, so that I'm inclined to walk according to your way. So that I'm inclined to worship you. I, when I think of what that looks like, um, when God takes his truth and puts it into your heart, what comes to mind is migratory birds. You know? Um, They fly south for the winter and north for the summer, right? And what's amazing is they don't have GPS. They don't need to stop and ask for directions. They don't have maps. They don't have compasses. God has given those migratory birds innate instinctual knowledge of where to go without having to check with anybody that migratory birds don't have to carry watches or clocks to realize, oh, wow, it's late in the fall, I better get headed south. They instinctively, innately know it's time, and they are compelled at the proper time to travel in the right direction. It's because it's, it's instinctive knowledge, it's innate knowledge that they have. We used to have that kind of knowledge of God. A God sense about us where we were naturally and innately inclined to worship God. We were naturally and innately inclined to run to him. We were naturally and innately inclined to obey him. We were naturally and innately um, created or inclined to worship and love and to enjoy him. That's what we were created to do. That was instinctual. No one had to tell us to do it. We didn't have to listen to a preacher. We didn't have to read it in the Bible. It was an innate instinctual knowledge of who God was, and our hearts were inclined to that, which was massively corrupted. Never since then we've been walking according to our own way and made ruin of our lives. And so you can understand maybe with that in mind, David saying, "Listen, I need you to imprint this, reprogram my heart with your truth." teach this piece of me that was once naturally inclined and innately inclined to you, teach me there. Because unless the teaching goes here, you will never do it in your actions or your will or your decisions in a way that honors the Lord. So that's what he's getting at when he's talking about teach my heart your ways, who you are. But you notice a second one. Teach and unite. Unite my heart to fear your name. If you reflect on fear at any length of time, and I think we know this, you realize that fears are the things that control you, largely. If you're hyper afraid of heights, you will never get on a ladder. Because that fear controls you. Uh, If you're hyper afraid of diseases, you're not going to want to be around anybody. Your fear will control you. If you're hyper-afraid of failure, you'll never try anything. There's our, our, our fears are what govern our lives. And as a result of that, and a lot of us have a lot of different fears, our hearts end up being divided, distracted, and fragmented with all of these fears, all these things controlling and vying for control in our, in our lives. Here David's saying, no. Unite my entire inward being To fear you. You. Let me live in fear. Let who you are, what you've revealed yourself to be, to be the governing factor in my life. Nothing else. Now it may strike you as weird talking about fear. Because in our culture we think of fear as a negative thing. And much of our fear is negative. But the fear of God in the Bible is is always positive. And it coexists, and I don't think it just coexists. It's one and the same with love, beauty, reverence, worship, awe, astonishment, bewilderment, wow. Like all of that is included in this whole concept of the fear of God. Or perhaps, a, I don't know, illustration would work better. I, what comes to mind is, is uh, for me, that just helped me understand fear in the biblical sense, is uh, my absolute favorite professor of all time. I'm not going to tell you who he is. Because I, I, I probably was a little bit too much of a person worshiper at this point in my life. Um, I considered him like the first member of the Trinity. Only it wouldn't be called <laughs> Trinity. Like the Quadrinity, the, wow. you know. And I just worshipped the, the ground that this guy walked on because he's so smart. Um, and s- I, I read his books. Um, every class he taught, I'd sign up for. I, don't care. I didn't care how inconvenient it was to my, my schedule. I would take classes with him. I listened to him on and offline. Like This, this is the kind of person he was to me. And uh, during my education, um, these... What they call apprenticeships came up, in which some of the people in my class were asked to go and apprentice under a, a, a pastor um, in Chicago. And uh, the only thing was, I had to go and interview with this guy, the fourth member of the Trinity. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I went into his office, and I was nervous, right? I could hear my heart beating. My, my, when I went to shake his hand, I was embarrassed because my palms were sweaty. And I just kept saying to myself, do not say something to make you look like an idiot. And I did. I completely <laughs> fell all over myself and make a, made a donkey out of myself in front of my favorite guy. And uh, It's interesting how I loved this man, benefited, enjoyed his teachings, and yet there was a sense of, of, of awe that I felt at the same time. You know, for some people, it's Tom Cruise or Justin Bieber. For me, no, it's this guy, right? I could sit on a plane with either of those two and just whatever. But this guy, he kind of made me, whew. Listen. I got over it. It's okay. Listen, when David's saying, unite my heart to fear your name, he's not talking about a man with a PhD after his his, uh, his name. I mean... when we really, our hearts are taught by the Spirit of God that we are in the presence of the one who is the everlasting God, creator of the ends of the earth, who does not faint or grow weary and whose understanding is unsearchable, there should be that sense of joyful trepidation, a mysterious astonishment That's the fear he's talking about. That God is so big in the heart and so glorious in the heart that you're utterly and completely overwhelmed and he becomes the consuming and governing center of your life. That's what he's praying for. And may I say that that is a a prayer that is big, hairy, audacious goal. That you would be the consuming and governing center of my life teach my heart unite my heart to fear your holy name that's what he's praying for himself well out of the heart comes the actions and out of the heart comes praise and that's the second piece of verse 12 he prays for his heart but that he goes on to say, and I believe this is the result of a heart that has been taught and united to fear God's greatness. I give thanks to you. This is gratitude, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify This isn't pretend worship. This is something that bubbles up and explodes from within. Because God has, has revealed and shown himself to be that joyful Mighty person that he really is. My whole heart and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. So just, you see the progression? A heart that is taught by the Spirit of God about his character and how he's acted and what he requires of us is a heart that will overflow with worship to God, with gratitude and praise. And that's where it comes from. That's where our worship should come from. And when it doesn't, it's not a problem with the mechanics. It's a problem with the heart. And that's, that's how it should result, is in our gratitude and glorifying of God. That is why we were made. That's what your heart was made for. That is the great purpose of humanity is to give thanks to God, bless his holy name, and to glorify him forever. Some of you know the Westminster Confession of faith. What is the chief end of man? We got to go through this sometime, you know, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. David's basically praying long before it ever existed, the Westminster Confession. To worship God, to glorify God, and enjoy his greatness forever. And the only way you can truly enjoy God is if you grasp the greatness, not just of his power and his wisdom, but the greatness of his love. And You'll notice that's the compelling feature of God's greatness that David alludes to in verse 12, uh, excuse me, 13, when it says four. Great. And, and that, that word great is so inadequate. Great to the billionth power. Great, 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 forever and ever is your steadfast love towards me. For you have delivered my, my, my soul from Sheol, that is from death, from the place I deserve, you have preserved and delivered and rescued me because you love me. That is so overwhelming to him that that, is the, that that is the fundamental deepest cause of his worship to God. Grasps that God loved him enough to save his soul from Sheol. He was probably thinking temporally in his life how many times God had saved him in battle. On the battlefield against Goliath or the armies of the Philistines and whether he knew it or not he was speaking far beyond his own personal experience to the time in which God himself would deliver us from death itself forever and ever that of course is the the cross of Jesus that is you notice God's love saves from death that's verse 13 what does the scripture tell us for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him should Not perish, death, Sheol, but have everlasting life. And we know that. But I venture to say most of us know it here. And we really need the Spirit of God to teach here. To unite our soul here. So that we too, with our whole hearts, can give thanks to the Lord for what he has done and glorify his name forever and ever and ever. Amen. It's this piece, and it's one of the pieces that's missing in Christianity in our time, that is our place, is to have this taught here. Then people will live different, they will speak different, they will relate differently because it's, it's here. That is, that is the effect, and the cause is God's love. So pray that God's glory would be the wholehearted object of gratitude and praise. That's what you were made for. That's what we were made for. And this is what David prays for his life. It ought to be the prayer for your life and you for each other's lives. Me for your life and you're for mine. Dan, Lord, please teach Dan's heart. Unite his heart to fear your name so that he might worship you from the soul, not just from the head. But it's bigger. Let me just take it. And now I'm going to flip back up to that first section of verses that I read. And with this, I'm going to bring us to a close. But the big, hairy, audacious goal of God is is not just David's heart. It's not just the people of Israel. But rather, the scope of God's steadfast, redeeming, and delivering love is the nation's itself. Now whether David, by divine revelation, theological reflection, or biblical deduction, understood that God just didn't love his people Israel, I don't know. But in this prayer, he alludes to the grand purpose of God for humanity, and that is, all the nations, all over the globe, on every continent, that you have made, they shall come And worship before you. In other words, their hearts will be united by the fear of his name. Their hearts will be taught by the spirit of God, the truth within. And they shall glorify your name. Same thing, same end, right? To glorify God and enjoy him forever only. This is the nations. For you are great. You're great not just to Israel, but you're great to the nations. You do wondrous things not just to Israel, but to the nations. You are God alone. This is the vast sweeping purpose that guides his prayer for his own soul and beyond his soul to the nations. That that is that is a, that is the the big grand purpose of world history that God is bringing to its conclusion and just so i put a period at the end of the sentence when you fast forward to the end of the bible what david prays here becomes reality there and it's not by accident that king david who writes about the nations gathering before god here that it would materialize through the son of david there That is the person of Christ. And I just, I have to read this because, like I said, puts the period at the end of the sentence. There we go. we got a little bit of a slow connection between this and that. But this is Revelation 5. Verse 9. And they sang, this is the the celestial beings, a song, a new song, saying, and they're singing to Christ, the son of David. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people uh, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth that is, the nations gathered before God as priests, direct and loved. That is the goal. That's where we're headed. And that ought to be the overarching direction of our prayers, individually and corporately, not just for our own lives, but for um, the sake of the globe. That's, that's a big, hairy, audacious goal for our prayers. What that means to us is, you, is that when we're praying about our struggles and our pains and our hurts, let's not limit the overarching direction of our prayers to just release from those things. So if we're praying for deliverance from depression, then we're not just praying for deliverance from the bad feelings of depression— but rather we're praying that in, through, and out of it, God would show himself to us, faithful and powerful, that our joy is restored so that we might fear his holy name and give thanks and glorify God forever and ever and ever. That is, we want at the end of our prayers for God to be glorified in our hearts and for those around who might see God deliver us from that particular struggle. Let's bring those things, those present pressures, into this overarching purpose of God. I want I want to experience your steadfast love in this situation, either through preservation or deliverance. And and, and I want others to see and glorify the way that you treat me. That's a that's taking that 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 struggle and giving it a much larger. Purpose. A lot of you have asked how um, our oldest son is doing. He graduates Navy boot camp in exactly one week, five days. (laughs) And because a lot of you have asked, I'll just tell you. But I, I want to wrap it in this message. This whole prayer series for me is not academic it's very personal and it's very real. And my wife will tell you, every morning I pray for him and I know she does too. But you know, my, 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 my prayers haven't been, all right, Lord, help him to do the 50 pushups he needs to do. Help him just to make it cross the finish line of Navy basic training. Now I do kind of pray for those things, right? But my, our heart for him is so much bigger. You know, just, Lord, expand the veil of his heart that he might know you live and know you love him. Will you meet him there? Show him your glory. Show him your, your power, your very personal um, companionship as he makes his way through this time, right? That's the larger purpose of praying. And as I said at the first message, you know, I'm learning to pray with greater confidence. But we received a letter from him. And um, in that letter, and we've had two calls. In that letter, he writes something to the effect of, and I can't do it uh, verbatim. Um, first, he said he missed us. That was good. <laughs> and um, he said... Um, God is putting things in place for me here, right? I was like, and then on top of that, went to chapel. They asked me to play the piano for the worship team. I'm just like, you know, I'm just <laughs> 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 There's a God in heaven, that's what I said. Now, granted, there's is, there is a long ways to go, but i just like, really, Lord... He's here, he's here, and he's listening, all right? He's listening. But the bigger picture is you want people to see God. That, that's, that's it. That's, that ought to be the heart of our, our prayers, and praying for each other, and praying for our kids, and praying for our church, and that it wouldn't just be contained here, but that it would flood outward to the nations. Amen? Amen. Father, help us to be praying people. Help us to pray in confidence. Help us to pray to your glory. And our deepest, deepest satisfying joy in who you are. Lord, we pray that these words would be taken to heart. We pray that out of these words that you have written, that you would drop us to our knees in confidence that our God who loves us hears. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.